Now do turn with me this morning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you found Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read from verse 15 this morning, right through to verse 22. Matthew chapter, 5, chapter 18, verse 15. We're breaking into the chapter. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and as a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 22. And we pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 18 and the verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now I want us to think today, very simply, of the presence of Christ in the midst of his church. Now let's put the words in the immediate context. If you look at verse 17, you'll see the word church. Now what does that mean? It's a Greek word. It means called out ones or called together ones. That would be a good way to describe the church. Called out ones and called together ones. Literally, it's an assembly or a congregation of called out people uh, from a life of slavery to sin and Satan and called together to assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the assembly of the church the meeting of the congregation is usually in connection with worship of God, with prayer that is offered, and even in the context here of church discipline. 
Because Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 18 is all about how to settle a church dispute. Two brethren, or it could be two sisters, has um, had a dispute. One has sinned against the other. One has done wrong against the other. And the offended brother goes to the offender and he tells him of his sin. He points out his fault and he tries to resolve the matter privately. If that attempt fails, he goes back again. He takes with him two other believers to hear the dispute and try to find a biblical solution. If that fails, then he tells it to the church. That is to the church representatives. And then the church then hears all the details and waits in the Lord in prayer. No doubt deliberates among themselves, seek God's counsel, seeks his guidance, his wisdom and help. And calls for repentance and grace to be evidenced in the life of the offended individual. And if there's no repentance after space has been given for such repentance, then the offender, the one who's done the wrong, is removed from the body of the congregation and no longer regarded as a member or a brother of that assembly. Now, this is Christ's teaching. And it's obvious that he has said this, that the church exercises and follows this kind of teaching when any kind of dispute arises in the assembly of his people. Yes, of course, when sin manifests itself and breaks out in the life of a congregation, it's sad, it's hard, no doubt it's difficult to cope with. Yes, there are serious consequences, but let's remember the testimony of God is at stake. The honour of the Lord is involved. The purity of Christ and the gospel has to be taken into consideration. And of course that's one of the reasons why the church meets for prayer. And I'm convinced in my mind that's the significance of the verse 19. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. The church gathers at the appointed time for prayer and the church seeks the mind and the counsel of the Lord. Now we come to verse 20. Think of the church now meeting for prayer, meeting for worship, meeting for any other purpose, even for church discipline. And listen to what Jesus says. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, these are well-known words. They're very instructive, and they're certainly highly important, and we should take serious note of them. And that's what I want to leave with you today. Three things in the text. We're thinking of the theme now, the presence of Christ in the midst of the church. Think, first of all, of the fact of Christ's presence in the church. Note its simplicity. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You see, certain people think of the word church 
And immediately they think of a big building, like a cathedral. They think of large numbers. They think of uh, lots of pomp and ceremony. They maybe even think of a set liturgy. They think of a, 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 a body having loads of resources and plenty of rooms. And if these are absent uh, from one's visibility um, and not evident, they don't think of the word church. But I want to stress this morning that none of the above things are I've mentioned are essential to the church. Because God's people can meet in small numbers. Here we are, two or three. And God's people can meet in humble surroundings. And it's often the case that there is no ornate buildings for God's people. There's certainly not the uh, greatest of furnishings. There's not loads of money in the bank. But even though there's small numbers, and even though there's humble surroundings, like what we have had for this past 16 years, the key is to meet in the Lord's name. That we have come to worship him. That we have come to praise and honour him. That we have come to pray to him. That we have come to conduct our, our affairs, our, our, our business in a manner that is glorifying to him. You see, his promise is what? Is to be there in the midst. Get the picture. Simple. Two or three in my name. Even humble surroundings. People called out from the world. A, a people delivered from a life of sin and slavery to Satan. A, a people called together in, in union with Jesus Christ. And he gives them a tremendous promise. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. He promises to be there also. Let me ask the question this morning. It's been in my mind all week. Why do we come to church? What is our primary reason? Do we come out of habit? Do, do we come to, to meet with the few friends that are here? We come because we identify with the Free Presbyterian Church as a denomination? Do, do we come because, well, it's something to do on a Sunday morning? Do you feel, well, I, I've got to go because I've got an obligation. I, I've got a role there. I've got a job to do. I come because my family's here. I come because I like it here. You probably wouldn't be saying, well, I come because I enjoy the preacher or the preaching. But what is the primary reason? We'll ask again. What is the primary reason for attending church on a Sunday morning? And here's the answer, folks, and it's very simple. And, and whenever I thought of this, it, it, it jumped out at me and it thrilled me as well. Here's the answer. The primary reason for attending church is to meet with Jesus Christ. Christ has promised to be in the midst. Why go to church? Children, young people, here's the answer. To meet with Jesus Christ. And it's as simple as that. And glory to God, it's as sublime as that. Hasn't he said? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
Not only note its simplicity, but note the certainty. You see, this is a promise here. Every time we meet in his name, he is not apart from us. He is not aloof from us. He is not distant. He doesn't stay away. He is present. He says, there am I. Now, of course, he's not physically present. You're looking around. Where's Jesus? He's not physically present. Sure he's not. It's a reference to his spiritual presence. That's his real, vital, living presence of the risen Christ. After his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, he went back to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Jesus Christ, of course, is there uh, as the uh, God-man. And he's there as the mediator of the new covenant. He, he sits at the throne of God in the role of prophet, uh, priest and king. Uh, and we read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and holding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, that's his death, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And where is Jesus Christ today? He is sitting as the God-man on the right hand of his heavenly Father. But by his Holy Spirit, when the church meets all over the world, in thousands of different places, in hundreds of different time zones, Christ is spiritually present. And it's as real and as vital and as living as if he was bodily present. And I want to tell you this morning, this is not a vain thing. This is not just an idea. This is not something imaginary. This is not something that's just pure empty rhetoric or a mere fantasy. Christ has promised to be there. So when you think of the fact of Christ's presence in the midst, think of how simple it is, but think of how certain it is. Notice something else. Note how practical it is. Because there's not only a simplicity here and a certainty, but there's a practicality. Let me tell you what Christ does for us. He precedes us when we come to worship. What he's really saying is, before you meet together in my name, I'm there before you. It's not just that, that I will be there. Or it's not just I will come and be present among you. It's not just that I am present. But I'm already there before you. He goeth before you. He's there first. He's the first comer every time we meet in his name. He's there before another's there. He's even here before Sammy. And he's usually the first here. Isn't that encouraging? Our gathering is always unto him. He's the one that is going before us. He, he, he not only invites us to come and meet with him, but he initiates it. 
The Lord draws, the Lord moves, the Lord guides our hearts. The Lord leads us to himself. He prompts us to come. He is so gracious to us. I was thinking in Genesis 49 verse 10 of old Jacob when he was lying dying in his bed and he got his 12 sons around the bed. And we'll not go through all the name of the sons. They were there in the shape of a horseshoe. And he's speaking to them about their lives and about the, 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 the tribes that they will represent in their lives. And he comes to Judah. And he mentions in the verse 10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And that's a direct reference to Christ. The name Shiloh is a name for Christ in the Bible. Christ came from the tribe of Judah. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That means he precedes them. He's there before them. Now every sinner, of course, is called upon to go and gather to Christ for salvation. And their testimony is the Lord has called me to himself. The Lord has chosen me for himself. The Lord has cleansed me in the blood. The Lord has, ha, ha, has commissioned me. The, the, the Lord has counseled me. The Lord cares for me. The Lord comforts me. And of course what's true of the sinner is true of the saints of God. We gather unto him. We gather around him. We gather in and through him. You see, let's think. Here's the announcement. Lord's Day services. 11.30 we'll meet for worship. And he's here ready. He's first. He's waiting for us. We have to say with Peter, it is the Lord. Not only as he pre uh, precedes uh, um, the, the people of God, but he's preeminent among them. Notice the word midst in the text. You see, isn't that a central position? Isn't that a, a prominent place? We could really say it's, it's a preeminent position, couldn't we? You see, as we meet, Christ is in the midst. That's his rightful place. It's his right by virtue of the victory of his redemptive work upon the cross and, and his resurrection bodily from the dead and his ascension to God's right hand. If you remember back, and we'll turn to this a little moment, in John chapter 20, the disciples were in the upper room. It's the Lord's Day evening. And Christ came and stood in the midst of them. And you know what he did? He showed them his hands and his feet. He showed them his wounds. Why did he do that? Was he not showing them proof of the victory of his death and resurrection glory? He, was he not announcing by these wounds in his hands his victory over sin and hell and death and the grave? As he stands in the midst. Think of another picture. Revelation 5. The door of heaven is open. There's a mighty throne. And the Bible tells us there in Revelation 5. And in the verse 6. And I beheld and know in the midst of the throne. And of the four beasts. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. As it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent forth into all the earth. Notice again. The preeminence. He is preeminent amongst them. He's in the midst. Here's the slain lamb. Here's the standing lamb. And there's victory in Jesus. 
You see, he always points us to himself as the victorious Christ. He always keeps the cross and his bloodshedding and his finished work at Calvary the central theme for the people of God. He's preeminent as the slain lamb, the one with the wounds. Not only think of Christ precedes them and Christ preeminent amongst them, but Christ purpose to them. It says in our text, there am I in the midst of them. Underline the word them. Who does that refer to? Now think. It refers to the two or three. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There's no other description. It's not limited to the minister or the ministers. It's not limited to the elders. It's not limited to the deacons. It's not limited to those who are workers in the church. It's two or three. In other words, it's all of God's people. Now listen to me very carefully. Maybe you're here in this church and you've been a member for a long time. Maybe you feel insignificant. You say to yourself, you know, I'm not really important in that work. I'm so tiny and small. No one will miss me if I didn't come. No one will care whether I attend or not. I want to tell you that's not true. And you know why it's not true? Because here's Christ's purpose for you. He wants to be near to you. Yes, he precedes you for worship. Yes, he's preeminent. But his purpose is to be near to all of his people. And he's calling us to meet with him. And he is very much interested in you. Surely that's one of the greatest incentives to come to the house of God. We come to meet with the Lord. That's our primary purpose. But we meet with the Lord and I discover in meeting with him that he's interested in me. Even me who feels insignificant and worthless and a nothing and a nobody and it wouldn't matter if I was absent. It would matter to him. We gather to Christ. Think of a hub and a wheel. Think of the, the wheel, the outer circumference. Think of the spokes. And they're all joined in, not only to the circumference of the wheel, but the hub. And it's interesting that the, the closer that the spokes get to the hub, the closer they get to each other. And you see, the spirit of Christ is really the spirit of, the, of unity. And, the, and there is a sense of unity and a sense of purpose. And it's tied into Christ because Christ is guaranteed and promised to be present. And it applies to the gathering of the church. It applies to us in the Christian home. Mummy and daddy and the children getting together. It applies to the family altar. It applies to so many things. I can't think of one thing where there would be a gathering and Christ would be absent. There's the fact of Christ's presence. Notice very quickly um, the focus of Christ's presence. You see, we'll ask another question. 
why does Christ come to be present with his people? What's the reason? We, we could say to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, why do you precede us when we come to worship? Lord, why are you preeminent amongst us? Lord, why do you have this purpose? And here's his answer. To strengthen, to encourage, to assist, to help, to do us good, to bless us in our time of need. He isn't a spectator, friend. He's not standing in the shadows. He knows us. He knows our needs. He knows our fears. He knows our wants. He knows our wishes. He knows our individual needs. He knows our congregational needs. And the Lord is so good. He's full of grace and favour. All power belongeth unto him. And he comes to meet with us to do us good. Now, now turn over there to John chapter 20. I, w- I want you to, to, to connect this. John chapter 20. I want you to read verse 19 and 20. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now now think of with me here. Think of the focus of Christ's presence. He stood in the midst. It's the Lord's day evening. The disciples are in Jerusalem. The, the doors are shut for fear of the Jews. They're assembled together. And we're told here in verse 19 that came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, now ask yourself this question. Why did he come? And here's the answer. And I'm just going to run through this very quickly. To comfort them. You see, their hearts were troubled. They were full of fear. What is the opposite of fear? It's peace. And what did he say to them? Peace be unto you. Why did he say that? Because their hearts were so fearful. They were so full of trouble. And in the midst of all our fears, he comes with a word for us. Maybe that's true of you this morning. Maybe you're fearful of the future. Even the future of this work. And you're worried about the state of true religion in the land. And you're full of doubt even about the the future viability of the church of God in Ulster. You're insecure in yourself. And the Lord has a word. Because he always has a word. And what's his word? It's Peace be unto you. You see, that was given to bring comfort to troubled hearts. And as I shared a little story with Mrs. Crawford that I've shared with many, perfect peace. Peace in the midst of the storm. And and you can have perfect peace this morning. You see, there was an artist. He entered a competition and that was to paint a scene of perfect peace. One artist painted a a sunset scene. Another artist painted a couple walking uh, through a forest with light streaming through the trees in the evening time. Birds there and it was tranquility uh, and all the rest. 
Another, he painted a scene of a raging sea and put a big rock in the middle and the waves going over the top of the rock and he hollowed out a little hole in the rock. We'll call it a cleft of the rock and he put a dove there and the dove remained there while the storm built over that rock. He won the prize. He entitled it Perfect Peace. William McRae sings the song Peace in the Midst of the Storm. And you see, here's one of the purposes that he has in meeting with us. Why does he come? To comfort our troubled hearts. He also come to counsel them. Not only comfort them, but, but to counsel them. Look at verse 20 in, in John 19. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Now why did he do that? He wanted to assure them of the victory of his finished work. He wanted to remind them, look, I was wounded for you. And look, I have risen again from the dead. And I'm the victor. And I have conquered sin and hell and the grave and even the devil and the demons in hell. They're subject to me. And the work that the Father gave me to do, I have finished the work. And here's the evidence, the wounds in my hand. You see, he was counselling them. He also challenged them. Notice he says in verse 21, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He was saying, go and serve me. And do you know something that I discovered this week? I've discovered that Coca-Cola... They're all familiar with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is known in about 97% of the world's population. They know about Coca-Cola. But that can't be said of Jesus Christ. Isn't that sad? And the only feet that the Lord has is ours. The only hands that the Lord has is ours. The only mouth that the Lord has has. Is ours. And we're to start in our Jerusalem and live for Christ, but also to speak for Christ. He's saying, Go and serve. I send you. And how are the folks in Killinure round carried off going to hear the gospel unless we go and tell them? So there's a challenge here. Aye. And there's something else. There's a charge here. Or a commission. He said in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed in them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Here's power for service. Why is he present with us? To do all these things and a thousand more. To comfort us with a word. He has got a message for us. To, 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 To give us a word in season. A word for our needy hearts. A word of empowerment and a word of instruction so, so we can enjoy um, a communion with him. See, he has an interest. And that's the very same reason he meets with us, to comfort us, to counsel us, to, to challenge us, to, to bring us into communion and fellowship with himself in a greater degree, to, to charge us. Now, now, we're sinners. We're full of faults, aren't we? We're weak. We've got problems with needs. We have many failures. There are things that divide us. 
There's different opinions of this, that and the other. But over and above that, he loves us. And he lives for us in glory. And he will remain faithful and loyal to us. And he'll have this mindset. And the mindset is to do us good. We're his church. He delights in us when he meets with us. And that's the focus of Christ's presence. And notice three things in closing. Think of the fruit of Christ's presence. You see, if Christ meets with us, and he has got this intention in his mind when he meets with us, then what's our response? Should it not be threefold, a resolution to Christ? Resolve to be present if Christ wants to meet with us and he's there before us and he's in the midst to bless and do us good. Then is that not a great incentive to come? An opportunity to meet Christ. The church ought to be an oasis in the desert. It ought to be like a, a heaven on earth. It ought to be a place of rest and refreshment. Oh, it's not perfect. This church is not perfect. This preacher is not perfect. Full of faults and, and indifferences. Uh, full of problems. But if the presence of Christ is here, then we should endeavor with resolve of purpose to come to every meeting that we can as the Lord gives us health and strength because I go to meet with the risen Christ. See, if that doesn't encourage you to come, be faithful to the house of God, nothing will. Christ has promised to be here. Thomas missed out, remember, in that John um, uh, 20 uh, first meeting. He was absent. And he carried on in unbelief for seven or eight more days. And just think of that. The disciples who had already seen him then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. But Thomas wasn't glad. He was sad. And he was going about with the weight of his shoulders. Why? Because he was full of unbelief. I don't believe it. Until he's seen Christ. Got his eyes in him. And what a change the Lord made. There's a reverence for Christ. You see, if he meets with us, then ought we not to magnify him and honour him and fear him? And seek to have fellowship with him. With nothing in between. Someone has rightly said a pure view of worship. Is because of a poor view of Christ. And it's easy to have poor views of Christ. Do you have a pure view of Christ this morning? Is that why you have a lack of reverence for him? That the fear of the Lord isn't upon you? And one final thing. There's a rejoicing in Christ. We sang... Psalm 122 deliberately this morning. I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. Jerusalem within thy gates, our feet shall stand and be. You see, if the Lord is here to meet with us, and he's got this purpose to do us good, then ought that not thrill our soul and bring us with a skip of delight? I'm going to the house of my God. I'm going to meet with the Lord because he's promised to come and meet with me. He's there in front of me. And that makes me merry and glad. We've already read in John chapter 20, verse 20, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Can you see the Lord with the eye of faith? 
Can you sense him? Here's the fruit of Christ's presence. There'll be a resolution among God's people to be present. There'll be a reverence for the Lord. I, I want to magnify and honor my Lord. And there'll be a rejoicing in him. Is that true of us today? May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to our hearts.